Hey guys, welcome to episode number 50 of the Rugby Strength Coach podcast. This is Keir from Rugby Strength Coach, and I'm going to open today with an apology for such a long gap between podcast episodes. You know, half, half apology, half explanation. The reason for this gap is that since the last episode, which I published early in December with uh, Corey from Stanford Basketball, I've changed jobs, I've changed countries, I've pretty much changed everything. Previously, I was obviously with Toshiba Rugby. Um, Since then, my contract has expired. I've left Tokyo and I've emigrated to the USA to try and realize my ambition of working in the NFL. So my, my new job is with the University of Richmond in Virginia, working with NCAA Division I athletes, primarily in American football, but in uh, a variety of different sports, including men's and uh, women's tennis, women's field hockey, which is obviously you know, a real good change for me because I've spent a good decade or so of working with exclusively uh, rugby athletes, male athletes, who are already at the professional level, mixing it up and, and testing myself as a coach with different sports different genders of athletes at a slightly earlier stage of their career has been a real positive change for me. And that's, that's the excuse out of the way. Now that I've done that, let's introduce today's guest. That is William Wayland. William is the owner and operator of Powering Through Strength and Conditioning based in Chelmsford, Essex in the UK. And uh, at the time of recording, which was just before Christmas, I've dated this episode horribly by mentioning that on the air. William and I had been kind of emailing back and forth, sharing ideas on social media for at least a year. And I think I first became aware of his work. I think it was maybe an article that he wrote about triphasic training, which was obviously popularized by Cal Dietz. But like so many guests, it became readily apparent that uh, he had a, a great level of knowledge and practical application on a variety of different topics besides triphasic training. So it was firstly for that reason that I asked William to present a webinar to our members inside the Rugby Strength Coach community on the application of triphasic principles for grapplers. And if you'd like to watch that presentation, you can go to rugbystrengthcoach.com slash members and use the coupon code TRIAL. That will allow you to watch his presentation and every other presentation that we have out of the 36. So that's you know a ton of video, a ton of education and discussions that you can access just for one pound. And if you want to cancel it, you can do. If you don't, it'll, you can become a long-term member and hopefully you'll be very, very happy that you did so. As is standard on the Rugby Strength Coach podcast, we began this conversation with a quick discussion about how he got into the profession, how he developed as a coach and how he ended up where he is now as the owner-operator of Powering Through in Chelmsford. Selfishly, our conversation really uh, centered around his work with combat athletes. I'm a, a jiu-jitsu blue belt, having taken up jiu-jitsu in the last two years and I have a strong desire to be less shit at jiu-jitsu than I am now. So uh, we really uh, centered around his, his work with combat sport athletes. And interestingly, a number of the difficulties that he experiences in working with fighters and their coaches are really quite similar to rugby. You know, typically uh, high days not being high enough to, to actually stimulate adaptation, low days being too high to recover from and actually adapt to the training that's been done previously. Again, issues with simulation versus stimulation in the conditioning stuff that we do, merely repeating what has been done in sport practice, but with less, uh, less context, rather than actually trying to focus on stimulating what the sport or practice doesn't do and filling in the gaps as the strength coach. Obviously, we talked about his, uh, the topic that he is most well known for, which is the application of, of triphasic strength development 
to the combat sports and how this might look in a real world setting when working with fighters. William is also a member of the, uh, the Olympic Lifting Anti-Appreciation Society. If I'm the president, he would probably be the vice president of the society. So you can hear his thoughts about using Olympic lifting for combat sport athletes and also any other kind of athlete and the reasons why he doesn't necessarily think that is the most optimal choice. Uh, just so you can hear his thoughts as well as mine. And then towards the end, we finished up with the discussion of how he implements readiness monitoring in the daily training of his combat athletes and how this can be used to auto-regulate training to ensure that the right stimulus in the right amount at the right time is delivered to the athlete each time they step in the gym to try and obviously reduce that risk of injury and optimize the training process. Now, if you've enjoyed this podcast and you want to check out more information like it, be sure to check out the Rugby Strength Coach community. This is an exclusive members website that I've created just for coaches and it offers a unique combination of video lectures, online discussion and career advice that's going to help you to take your coaching career to the next level. Each month we offer a 60 minute video lecture from a strength and conditioning coach working at the elite or professional level of sport on a topic that is dear to their heart. This is not just the stuff that you get taught that matters when you do your accreditation, your UKSCA or your degree. This is the stuff that keeps elite level coaches up at night that really matters in their job in the real world. We've got presentations from guys that work in the NFL, professional soccer, elite level track and field, uh, the NRL in Australia and New Zealand, international rugby, professional cycling, the list goes on. We have over 30 hours of video lectures and the list is growing all the time and you will get access to all of these when you sign up to become a member of the Rugby Strength Coach community. Not only this, but you're going to get access to the online discussion forum. We have hundreds of members from all over the world working at the very, very top of the game all the way down to novice coaches. Here, you're going to be able to discuss every strength and conditioning topic under the sun to ask questions and get answers and share resources. Lastly, we also offer a special area of the forum dedicated to career development. Here, you're going to be able to get advice from coaches who have been there, done it, brought the t-shirt and worked at the highest level of the industry. Here, you're going to get advice and all the things you need to do to build the career that you want, including networking, CV writing, interview prep and climbing the ladder. So if that sounds good to you and you'd like to try it out, just go to rugbystrengthcoach.com members and enter the code word trial. This is going to allow you to sign up for 24 hours at the price of just one pound. If you like it, keep it and you can sign up to become a regular member. If you don't, just get in contact with us, cancel it. There's no strings attached. If you don't like it and it's not for you, no problem. But for now, sit back and enjoy the podcast. William, how's it going? I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm tip top, brother. I'm um, just gearing up for Christmas. And uh, I think this one's well overdue, you and me, to uh, to do a podcast. Because um, I think how long we've been e- emailing back and forth for? Well over a year now, right? Yeah, something like that. And you did an awesome like um, presentation on the, the Rugby Strength Coach community. That's a plug right there. Um. So yeah, if anyone wants to listen to that, make sure they, they check out uh, your, your webinar. But for, for people who've not heard of you before, uh, who are you and what do you do? Uh, so uh, I am a strength and conditioning coach uh, based in the southeast of England in Essex. And I also happen to own and operate a training facility called uh, Powering Through Performance. And uh, the bulk of my, my work is with uh, MMA fighters, including a few that have been in the UFC, uh, a number of grapplers and professional boxers. But I also work 
with a large body of uh, uh, golfers, both professionally and amateur. And we uh, run a pretty popular um, youth strength and conditioning program for golf out of our training facility. How did that mix come together? Because <laughs> that's obviously those, those are some very like different sporting worlds right there. Yeah, so um, I've been working with um, my backgrounds in combat sport anyway. So I'd always worked with with combat athletes, um, and then it was a case of working working with one combat athlete who had a uh, pretty good relationship with um, the head physio of England Golf, uh, a very smart guy called Dan Dan Coughlin, who I work with quite closely now. And he was curious who this sort of freelance S and C coach doing all this stuff was. So he popped down into the gym and sort of sat in on some of our sessions, really liked what I was doing, and then decided to start referring golfers to me via that way. So sometimes it just takes that that one connection to to you know give your career a, a sort of kick kick in the right direction, and and that's where now a lot of the uh, golfing uh, clients come from. And and the golf SNC world is a is a a topic in and of itself that could be explored for a long time because it's uh, yeah it's interesting. Well, I was literally just about to say, you know, you, your golfers are seriously strong. Like, yes, a lot of those guys put up numbers that would not be out of place in a rugby gym. Would you say that you're in the minority of, of strength conditioning coaches for golf in that your athletes are going to put up those kind of numbers? Uh, definitely, definitely. And um, because golf is kind of uh, culturally as a sport, it has a hard time trying to figure out how to deal with strong athletes. Um, if you, I think it was last year, if you look at some of the flack that um, Rory McElroy caught uh, on social media for lifting heavy weights and putting up videos of him lifting heavy weights, you know, trap bar stuff, squats, stuff like that, fairly sort of modest, you know, sort of one and a half to sort of, I think 1.7 times body weight back squats, stuff like that, you know, um, stuff that sort of a hardcore gym uh, person might sniff at, but for a golfer, they, you know, that's pretty strong. And he caught tons of flack for it from sort of quite well-known golf pundits as well, telling him that it was a mistake, that he was going to end up hurting himself, you know. And he hasn't done badly, to be honest, you know. And and a lot of it started with Tiger Woods as well. Um, yeah, he's had his problems with injuries and things, but uh, you know, golf's a rough sport, and people don't appreciate that. So that's why being um, as strong as possible is is really really useful. Um, because the amount of stress that goes through the body uh, when a golf swing, I had no appreciation for it, but I sat down um, and took a look at sort of what's going on and, and the, the forces going through their spines are enormous. And it makes me wonder why, you know, for a lot of the time, golfers only really catch on to S&C once they've been injured because yeah. they go see a physio and the physio refers them to maybe do some strength training. Then they do some strength training and, um, the problem seems to be is there's a there's a there's a, a body of coaches that with golf they effectively try and replicate the golf swing in the gym and that seems to be the thing or they'll take the golf swing and add instability and call that strength training um, whereas as well as well we know they probably just need more fundamental strength work as opposed to golf-ish strength looking type stuff in the gym which is what seems to happen most of the time. Yeah, and you know I think it was a quote from this week. I think you basically said there's there's more resiliency to be found underneath a barbell than underneath an upturned kettlebell. Yeah, yeah, um, that was in the the uh, post I wrote recently for, for Simply Faster, and um, yeah, you can you can do all the the, uh, the the all the goblet squats you want in the world, but at the end of the day, if you're not progressing beyond that, 
you know, you're, you're not really going to achieve much at all. Um, and that's not to say goblet squats are a bad movement, but, uh, you know, you, you, you just sort of, I don't know, pandering to people's uh, sort of fear by having them do stuff like that and never really moving them on. And that's the problem in golf is this, this fear of strength as if somehow affect their swing because the swing is considered, you know, the most precious thing. Uh, and any aberration to that um, is considered, you know, sacrosanct. Whatever you do, it mustn't affect the swing. And that's something I hear quite a lot. Well, I mean, you know, from my end, I think you, maybe you got tagged in that conversation. There was a, a, a video posted in a sports science group on Facebook recently where it was a video of a, a throwing athlete using like a, a, a rig setup which looked somewhat similar to, to a javelin throw. And yes. the way that I looked at it, it was basically they were they were trying to use the shot method, so using an overloaded or overspeed implement to, to increase eccentric stress. And then, yeah. you know, kind of approximate some parts of the throwing action. And a, a bunch of people jumped on the bandwagon. Doesn't this athlete know that you can't do, you know, X, Y, Z to, to simulate a sporting action? They're going to ruin technique. And, you know, one of the arguments that I counter back with is, well, listen, how many throws do you think they're taking a week? They're taking hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of throws. Do you think they're suddenly going to lose this technique or it's going to break down into pieces by doing 30 reps on this on this rig? And I think you could almost say the same with the golf swing. A couple of sets of squats is going to have a, a really big in, effect on resilience. But when you're taking thousands probably of swings a week, it's probably not going to have an effect on technique. No, exactly. Um, and... The, the weighted golf club is a thing, um, and there's also low-load golf clubs where you work on speed work, um, so it's literally just a stick, yeah. uh, uh, but you also get the weighted clubs as well, and I think with swing sports, it is a problem. It takes it does cause some, some technique aberration with a weighted club, but it doesn't cause it with a, with a lightened club. Oh, really? So, you know, yeah, it's, uh, and it seems to be the same seems to be true in baseball as well. Uh, because they've tried it with with loaded bats, and the loaded bat seems to cause uh, a lot of problems in movement. Now, this might be different to say a movement like throwing a javelin or a shot or something, which is sort of, I guess, um, somewhat uh, more simplistic movements. Whereas a golf swing, yeah, yeah is a lot. There's a little bit more. There's a lot of nuance, and yeah. I'm still trying to learn the nuance as well. But um, yeah, it's it's, uh, it's very. I know uh, Bondarchuk was a, a big fan of overloaded throws. As, as, as well as like under underloaded throws. So I think mm. that would be my guess as well. It's like, it's, it's a little bit more of a simple action than, than say uh, swinging yeah. your bat or swinging your club. But you know, we, yeah. we'll, uh, we'll touch more on the, the simulation stuff when it comes to the combat sports. Cause uh, I know you and I have, have discussed at length about um, certain, certain drills, but yes. going on to the, the combat sports, was it the coaching that came first for you or the combat sports? It was the it was the combat sports that came that came first for me because my background uh, I started out doing doing um, uh, doing taekwondo for Same. for a long time yeah and then um, I got my black belt in that and then I became very disillusioned with Olympic style taekwondo yeah. um, the 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 moving around of the training bases and stuff in the UK and uh, I wasn't really enjoying the way that the, 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 the sport of Taekwondo had developed. And then I scrambled for something new. I tried a different, couple of different martial arts and, and found, um, I found Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu as a result. You know, and it sort of coincided with the rise of, of MMA as well. Uh, and then as I developed as a strength coach, you know, that was sort of kind of where I wanted to, 
to lay my, hang my hat, so to speak, and sort of work with athletes in, in that domain. So was, you know, professionally, have you always been a strength coach then? Um, yes. Yeah. Uh, I've always been a strength coach. Um, I, you know, when I was, when I was at university, I started out as a personal trainer. Um, uh, I was, a, I was a personal trainer for about four or five years. I didn't particularly enjoy it, but I think it helped build a foundation of learning to deal with people. Oh, um, dude, if you, you know, can, if you can make it in commercial PT, you can make it anywhere. <laughs> yeah. And, and people, people like a lot of SNC guys look down on PT, but I think that that, that background of experience especially dealing with the general public is, is super, super important, you know? Uh, and then once, once I finished up there, I then started, um, move, moving into, into S and C work, uh, you know, trying my hand at different things. Was it the, the, the kind of typical situation for you where you're training with guys in the combat sports and they say, you oh, fucking hell, you're strong. And then you, you end up writing programs for people. And people <laughs> you know, it, it turns into a that- job, right? Yeah, that that uh, has that has happened and occasionally still does happen. Yeah. Um, but but um, a lot of the time, it, it's um, guys have come seek me out, and it was uh, a case of I was teaching sports science, and then I started uh, doing some SNC on the side, and gradually more and more fighters started coming to see me because they're very much very tribal. So uh, word of mouth counts for a lot between these guys. Um, you know, if they pick a guy they like. Uh, and then, then hopefully you live and die by referrals, especially with, with combat athletes, because um, when it comes to SNC, very rarely is there an in-house SNC coach. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And you know, some some of the stuff you see in in uh, fight gyms, what gets labelled as strength conditioning is just it makes you scratch your head. So I guess that, yeah. that, that prompts the next question, which is, what are the biggest problems that you see in in uh, combat athletes that don't have structured coaching? Um, the, the biggest issue is, is, uh, largely doing too much. Yeah. Um, they, they thrive on high training volumes, which is both uh, a good thing and a bad thing. Um, and they generally will then try and have their strength and conditioning replicate that mentality. Yeah. So, so more, more, uh, like high, quite high, high volume work in the gym. Um, and uh, there's a there's a big functional bent as well. Um, you know, a lot of uh, people who are sort of popularized and, and MMA fighters gravitate towards are very big on things like kettlebells um, and, and stuff like that. So there's this sort of interesting sort of functional training bent, especially in the jiu-jitsu and MMA communities, where they'll gravitate towards stuff that is obviously in their eyes, uh, you know, um, functional and uh, more productive for um, uh, MMA, and a lot of it goes back to the, this notion that you know, if, if you look like a bodybuilder, you're probably going to suck in a fight, and it sort of it, it, it speaks to sort of a mentality that that's um, sort of very old, especially in in martial sports. Um, and and yeah, there's this sort of they'll do a lot of high volume work, and um, the other thing they generally avoid heavy lifting if they can, mainly because the soreness they acquire. Uh, that it makes them feel slightly dead on the mats the next day, and I can appreciate that. Um, and they will generally sort of, you know, they keep the weights quite light, or they'll keep, um, or they'll stick to sort of largely explosive work, uh, which has a place, but they generally don't sequence it in any real fashion. Uh, is the other problem. So sometimes I'll have guys who uh, I'll talk to them, and they'll be lifting either almost up to the fight, or perhaps they'll lift occasionally and do a bunch of random stuff up until the fight. So. What, what are your solutions to, to those problems or what does a typical 
intervention look like for you when, when a fighter comes to you? How, how do you sort them out? So um, the first thing I do uh, is, is generally I'll sit down and go over their training schedule with them. So we'll, 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 we'll identify a week and then we'll identify a month and we'll identify approach uh, towards, a, towards a fight. And then if we have a fight date, we'll generally work backwards um, and, and identify uh, periods that they need to work on uh, running, um, coming back forward. So it's, um, it's a funny situation because initially when I started doing SNC with fighters, a lot of them would come to me and it'd be like a case of, I've got four weeks or I've got eight weeks, which is almost not enough time to do anything. Um, now, because they appreciate it somewhat better, they'll come to me with maybe 12 or 16 weeks. And that's when we can really sit down and start to uh, plot out what it is we're planning to do. And then those of them that have really bought in, they'll turn it into a year-round um, approach, which is what I'm, I always try and push them towards eventually, to think of things year-round. Because um, in the past, it's been like, oh, I've got 12 weeks, time to get in shape. And we know that, that strength and conditioning is really a year-round pursuit. And it will peak and trough throughout the year, but it does need to be approached with a sort of holistic mentality. Uh, and it's getting better for the guys who are pro. Some of the amateur guys are still like that. They'll, they'll pick up more um, just before a fight, um, and, and they'll suddenly intensify their training an awful lot, whereas quite often that's what causes the wheels to come off. Yeah. Um, because they're trying to intens intensify everything at once. Um, including the strength training, including the mat work, you know, whereas I'm always say if they're four weeks out or eight weeks out and they're like, oh, I need to do some strength work. It's like, you should have been doing that 16, you know, 20 weeks ago. Um, you know, the fact you're worrying about it now suggests that we're, we're, we're way too late. So, um, we sort of sit down, see where they are, see where they've got to go, uh, in terms of, um, planning out for a, a fight camp. And it's sort of largely dependent on them because, some can come with a lot of soft tissue injuries as well. Um, they'll come in with uh, um, uh, a sort of high training load, sometimes bent towards certain disciplines. So if they're a jiu-jitsu guy, they'll be doing way more of that than, say, striking or, or wrestling. And then vice versa, if they're someone who's very keen on striking. And then what will happen is their uh, sports loads will shift about um, as they try or their coach feels they need to focus on certain things. But sometimes that's not even the case. Sometimes they'll be focused on things they think they need to work on as opposed to what maybe they actually need to work on. Oh, that kills me. <laughs> <laughs> how, um, how, how, if at all, do you, do you work with the sport coaches to try and get in sync with what they're doing? Because obviously you know that you can do everything right as a, as a, a strength and conditioning coach, but then if sport practice isn't, isn't synced up with that, it's, it's like trying to piss into the wind. Yeah, um, so... If I can, I try and get, I try and keep a line of communication over with the sport coach, uh, and I'll give them um, an outline of what we're doing. Some um, are really interested in what we're doing; other ones are far more dismissive uh, to, to buy into what you're doing, um, which you know can be a bit of a problem. It depends on their approach because I've met some coaches who do not believe in strength and conditioning per se, uh, and they think it it, it should be. Uh, um, you know, it's skill thing. So it should all be about skill acquisition. My jiu-jitsu coach, for instance, it, it doesn't really doesn't really believe in SNC. Even though I've worked with him for a long time, he's he's not a, not a massive fan. Um, and it's that jiu-jitsu mindset of, of being technically more capable uh, will overcome someone who is perhaps stronger. Um, and I think he has an appreciation for his injury prevention qualities. But 
yeah, it's it's having a line of communication open. Um, I share the programs with them, so I'll send them out uh, to tell them what we're up to. Um, if we're doing readiness testing, um, I'll share the readiness testing to like a, a, a either a Facebook group or I'll send them to them to say, well, today uh, they came in and they were they were down on their readiness testing. Um, just maybe take it easier with them when they're um, uh, doing their technical their skill work or their sparring work l- later today because. A lot of MMA coaches don't do that type of testing before uh, a skill training session. They'll just get them straight on the mats and, and just go. There's sort of, there's, and because, because a lot of the time, the way MMA fighters train, quite often they're in with their, their training sessions, quite often with the general public. So there's not a lot of time to then turn around and do things uh, individually for each fighter. So um, you can do all the, all, the, all the individual sort of work you want with a coach, but then their sports load is not really specified to them. And they'll just do whatever the rest of the group's doing. Would you say you adhere to like a, a high-low model of training or you try and guide athletes towards a, a high-low organization of training? And if so, how does that how does that fit with what combat sport athletes are doing when they may do two or three sessions a day? Um, so I do try and guide them towards, towards high-low. And it's part of when I sit down and talk to them. Um, so a low day, we generally class as days where it's largely technical training. Um, and then a high day would be days when, when they spar, uh, and it's to try and get them to separate those two things out so they can put the best of themselves into that specific thing they're trying to work on. So quite often, um, I'll get them, uh, lift, um, on a morning and then if they've got sparring in the evening, I'm not too, I'm not too worried about that because the sparring sort of, um, uh, counts as, as, as a sort of sports specific conditioning as well and that seems to work okay but it, it does depend on what the coach decides to do because some days they'll spar with no warning that they're going to spar so you kind of have to especially with the strength training with the with the work we do do we keep it sort of very low volume high intensity and a very moderate frequency because sometimes we're not entirely sure what the what the sports coaches are going to throw at them um and it does depend on the level of the gym. Some gyms are very, very organized, and some gyms aren't organized, but still produce very good fighters. And, um, you know, I suppose that gives you a little bit of wiggle room. You, you, you don't want to max out the amount of lifting you're doing if, if, you, if you're not able to predict uh, very accurately what they're going to do in sport practice. Exactly. And, and it's where the high-low model is useful in getting them to, to buy into the notion of, of, of uh, intensive one-day less intensive another day, intensive, you know, or, or perhaps two intensive days together and then two low days together and just get them out of the mentality of just being hammer and tongs all the time, which is the, the biggest issue. Now, you, you mentioned there that you're going to use the, the sparring as uh, like a sport-specific conditioning and we've, yeah. we've talked a little bit in private about trying to train what uh, sport practice doesn't train. So, you know, for, for us in rugby, we, we try and do a lot of alactic and a lot of aerobic work because that the game is going to hover around that middle zone and we actually want to avoid that because mm-hmm. if we just use the limited time we have to train that stuff, we're just getting more of what we already got. It, are you going to take a similar approach with, with combat sport athletes? And if so, how does that energy system work or conditioning work flow from one phase to the next throughout fight camp? Yeah, so... Um, yeah, this is, it, I do pretty much the same thing when it comes to the way, uh, we approach conditioning for, for fighters. They, um, even to the point where I sometimes 
don't bother with the with the sort of aerobic work either. I focus solely on on the alactic stuff because um, not only are they get these guys sparring, but they're doing hour hour and a half drilling sessions, um, technical sessions that that act as a sort of low level uh, you know sort of aerobic work capacity base for them and. I used to be very, very big on, on, on sort of the lactate-based sort of circuits, stuff like that, and 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 I'm more than willing to admit that, that now that was the wrong approach, um, you know, partly because I thought it was helping them, and in, over the short term it does. That conditioning does have a place maybe a couple of weeks out, but for the most part, it's it's those alactic drills, so like um, short duration, heavy bag work, short duration, um, I don't get them sprinting so much, running. I don't get them doing so much of that stuff. Um, I'm not a fan of having fighters uh, run, but ugly, I think hey? it was the, yeah, I think it was the, uh, it's too risky. We've had, I've had guys pull up with hamstring injuries running hundreds. Um, fortunately, not I wasn't taking the session, but a coach decided it was a good idea to have them run hundred, hundreds for some reason. Yeah. And uh, I had, I had uh, one guy pull up with a ba- pretty bad hamstring injury that I then had to work on getting better. And that's because his boxing coach decided that running hundred meter sprints was a good idea. Wow. But, um, yeah, we'll, we'll stay away from that stuff because, yeah, fighters running is generally quite ugly. Um, so if we can, we get it to, to be as sport-specific as possible in that regard. Like, say, hitting a heavy bag is great. We've got a water bag in the gym, and I'll have guys do six to ten second uh, all-out, um, something the, thumping the heavy bag, and then, you know, very long rest, and then have them go again. But getting them into the mentality that this is a good thing for them is so hard. Because it's like, what do you mean you want me to do ten seconds work and then rest a couple of minutes? It's it's yeah, like, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, and it's 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 hard getting them out of that that mentality. And then we'll use other bits and pieces, tools and stuff. that's sort of general. I've got ski yogas in the gym; they work pretty well for 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 sort of intensive stuff. And we've got you know, the other usual sled battle ropes. So we'll do bits and pieces with with, with that uh, sort of for a lactic work. Um, you know, you got to work within the parameters of what you've got available to you. So you know. Um, but yeah, the, the the steady state conditioning stuff is is generally I find it very hard to a fit in because it takes up time for these guys because they're training two to three times a day, so uh, and then they're spending anywhere upwards of sort of three to four hours on the mats and they're generally they're not really they never really stop moving so they when we test them generally they've got pretty good aerobic conditioning. Um, I had a guy a bunch of guys come in recently. We did some uh, estimated aerobic testing with them. And they all tested pretty high. And, and it's like, are you doing anything specific for conditioning? It's like, no, just roll and, and, and spar and, and, and drill, you know? And, and it's like, well, maybe then there's not much cool for doing you know, extensive aerobic work for these guys. And then you, just, you, you spend the time you have on developing those maximal outputs, right? Yeah, the sharp, the sharp end of the stick, basically, is the way I phrase it. So we work on the, working on the, the, the very qualitative short duration stuff even with the lifting, we'll time their sets and have them do time sets and stuff. And, and the sort of the, the, the greatest expressions of, of, of strength and power we can achieve will be what we mainly focus on. So that, that really sharp end of things. Um, you know, some guys, I get guys, you know, I get guys come in after a layoff and stuff. And yeah, we need to do some GPP or something with them. But most of the time, it's just sharpening the sword, so to speak. And, you know, you're probably... In, in my opinion, in the UK, you're probably one of the, the most knowledgeable people when it comes to, to triphasic style training, <laughs> definitely within the combat sports as well. You know, like you're, you're the best out there for me when it comes to that stuff. 
is that something you tend to use out the box with fighters or do you if if they're relatively new to training you're gonna you're gonna use that like an ace up your sleeve and, and wait to use that so um I, I I use it on a principle, and when it comes to new guys, I use it on a principle basis. So we can still yield the benefits of uh, extensive eccentrics and, and intensive isometrics, but it doesn't necessarily have to take the form or the way, say, Cal Deep to set it out. So we'll we'll apply, apply it on a principle basis, maybe with different movements, maybe with with changed rep ranges and stuff, because there's still a lot to be gleaned, especially for fighters from just doing intensively centric work because it, it provides so much in terms of robustness and, and injury prevention. And we notice a difference pretty quickly if we just get them doing, say, uh, you know, calisthenics with, with uh, intensively centrics added into it or, or, or isometrics, and they see a change pretty fast. Um, so, yeah, it's just taking the principles of triphasic training and then applying it perhaps differently using a similar sort of block sequence um, but yeah, the movements do not have to be, uh, you know, the traditional back squat bench press. So we'll, we'll apply it in different ways and it depends on, you get some guys come in, they're good fighters, but they've never lifted before. So you have to, you have to strip it back down and regress them to, to, yeah, maybe you might break out the upturn kettlebell at that point, yeah. you know, and get them to do some eccentric squats. But, uh, yeah, it, it just apply it principally as opposed to sticking to the, like the percentages and, and, and the, even the tempos that, that Cal suggests, I found it works pretty well. And are you going to use it kind of as it's outlined in the book, like a GPP into triphasic, then you're kind of working uh, like that 60 to 85% range and then like a, almost like a taper peaking kind of thing. Yeah. So uh, for the, for, you know, you've got to, you've got to adhere to fundamentals first. And then, then once you, you understand them and, 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 and know what you're doing, then you can you start toying with things. So even to the point where if I'm time limited, We'll do, you know, we'll, we'll maybe not run the GPP. We'll do the eccentrics, we'll do the isometrics, and then we'll jump straight to that 80 to 55%, you know, high force, high velocity block, and then they'll fight. So I'll, 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 I'll cut out the heavy concentric work yeah. um, to, to, for, for that time compression uh, effect. So it depends how, how much time we have. For instance, I once had really short notice with Arnold. We did four weeks super maximal um, with the safety bar squat. And then we, um, and then we did another six weeks high force, high velocity, and that was the, that was the whole cycle from from one fight through to another fight because we were we were time short. So it can be condensed if you if you have to do it that way. So there's there's a lot of ways to manipulate it. I, like the full model, I think is like 20 weeks or something if you do it as yeah. per suggested. So you can maybe get two full cycles in a year. Um, you know, so it, but the the fact that there's a compressed model now. And you can then monkey with that and, and make it work for you. You know, you can condense, you know, the, the, the essence of triphasic training really down to six to eight weeks if you know what you're doing. With that power block, I'm curious, you know, with um, one idea that I have in my head is obviously you want to finish uh, a mesocycle, you want to finish a training block with the most specific conditions possible. And obviously one of those yeah. is velocity. So in that 50 to... I think 50 to 85 percent that you mentioned are you actually going to mm-hmm. reduce the load as that block progresses to try and increase the velocity yeah so if we're working over six to eight weeks we'll maybe uh look to 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 to, to shave down towards higher velocities in the in the last two weeks but then that that's why the the sub 55 
uh, block exists because that's a very sport-specific velocities or time under tension or um, you know the, the oscillatory type work or, or work that is sort of congruent to the energy systems that might appear or the durations that might appear during high velo- uh, velocity work. So that's that sub 55 block. So it depends on the athlete. If I've got a guy who's still not particularly strong and doesn't have great levels of, of, of you know, uh, force development, will stay towards the higher end at 80%. But as they become more advanced and their strength is better established and better stabilized, I'll spend more time down at that 55% end of things. Um, but it depends, like, for instance, for Arnold, uh, because he's so strong, um, we won't spend much of the year. Uh, we'll maybe, we, this year, we've maybe done two short triphasic blocks, and the rest of the time, he spent most of his time closer to that 55% stuff, repeaking, going back up to 80% every now and again, just to keep his strength levels kind of uh, tested and on point. But most of the time, because of his training load as well, we'll keep things closer to the 55%. So I'm going to go to one of your uh, one of your favourite topics, Olympic lifting, uh, for, <laughs> for combat sport athletes and for uh, golfers. What do you think? Um, so uh, just addressing the golfers, we um, you know uh, we were I was at the England Golf Conference just recently, and Dan Dan Coughlin opened the floor up to to a question. He literally tossed a grenade in the room and said, "So what do you think about Olympic lifting?" and um, because I mentioned in the, in the seminar, we don't use a lot of Olympic lifts. We use more more squat jumps. We use more uh, trap bar jumps, and we use a lot of med ball throwing, uh, oscillatory work, and we use a lot of accommodating resistance, all that stuff. Um, and no, you know, the guys in the room are all, all super smart people, all good SNC coaches. But I guess it's partly because they have that UK SCA background. They kind of balked at the idea that maybe not doing Olympic lifts was was a little bit sort of sacrosanct and yeah. and um, I said in my case, and I think it's important to have the discussion, you know, and, and with golfers, I think because there's so much technical nuance in the sport um, and the way that, like, for instance, um, the, the contact hours that strength coaches have with their golf athletes, because most of the time they're on tour, especially if they're professional. So uh, unless you travel with them, you can't coach them. So if you have them in and do Olympic lifts for a couple of weeks, for instance, um, once they go away on the tour, do you know that they're going to have the time or the space or the facility to be able to do those movements? Um, you, you don't because most golf courses, um, don't have great gym facilities. Uh, for instance, on the European tour, they have a physio truck, which you, you could do some Olympic lifts in, but it's a pretty small space. Um, and then, you know, I think there's just, because so much time, I'd rather have them practicing their golf swing and working on their golf-specific work, layering another level of, of, of technical practice on top of that. Um, that's something I, I can't really abide. And um, the other thing I ask, uh, especially for the MMA guys, is like, well, if you want to get into Olympic lifting, you know, can you get, a, can you get in an ass-to-grass position? You know, do you, lose, do you lose your spine at any point under heavy pulling? You know, um, you know, can they overhead squat, you know, and keep it looking pretty good? You know, what are their wrists like? What are their elbows like? Have they ever bulged any discs? Have they ever dislocated their shoulders? And most of the time, MMA fighters usually have some sort of pathology in, of the arm, you know, back, knees, whatever. And, and just, yeah, it's a real risk in terms of, of uh, in terms of soft tissue stuff. And don't get me wrong, um, I have the utmost respect for Olympic lifters. Uh, I've got a man crush on Liu Chao Jun, 
occasionally to get hyped up. I like watching some of his his, his uh, lifting videos because um, that guy's awesome. Uh, and yeah, I have the utmost respect for them as athletes. But I think we get we conflate the fact that these guys are so explosive and so good with the, with perhaps they're just super strong people who are very explosive. And in Olympic lifting is perhaps a means of them expressing that as opposed to Olympic lifting, making them super strong and super explosive. And, and yeah, it's, 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 um, a, a tricky issue, uh, you know, because there's such a, a cultural bent towards Olympic lifting. But I think, you know, as, as you said, uh, if you can't, you, you know, I can't remember your exact quote, but it was something along the lines of, um, you know, your brain not being able to discern between, uh, you know, doing a power clean or a trap bar jump, oh, no, you know, then, um... I said, if you if your brain cannot tell the difference between a, a migraine and a tumor, it probably can't tell the difference between a, a, a trap bar jump and a power clean. Yeah, perfect. So yeah, with that that sort of in mind, it's a case of well, I've, I've got a goal for here now for the off season. I've got three months. I can spend three months trying to teach them to snatch from 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 zero, or I can spend those three months doing trap bar jumps and getting getting a result now. And that's the thing that confounded me a little bit is like we can affect change now. Or we can wait for the change, and then it'd be too late, if you understand what I'm saying. Yeah, and hope you get so, high again at the end of it. Yeah, yeah. You're always going to go the more expedient route. Why Why do people have such a hard time with that? You know? Um, and, and I think it's just their bias towards certain ways of doing things, maybe. Um, you know, I don't know if it's a problem, and, and I'll speak openly. I don't know if it's a problem that's sort of somewhat endemic in the UK because of the, the sway of the UK SCA. I think Unquestionably. Yeah. So, you know, whereas I, I've seen the, you know, I've got, I've got my CSCS and, and I see sometimes the, 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 the National Strength and Conditioning Association jokingly referred to as the Power Clean Association because it's the only Olympic lift they know, you know, but, uh, you know, there's, there's always going to be biases and bents towards certain things. It's, yeah, it's partly human, you know, but the big thing I'm trying to look at is, well, what's, what's the best way of producing the most powerful athletes as opposed to trying to jam them into some sort of preconceived notion of what strong or powerful is supposed to look like. Indeed. And, you know, there was an, another question I wanted to ask you about. I think we, uh, we exchanged some videos on Instagram. I won't say where, but, you know, seeing fighters going through conditioning drills with, with dummies or like bouncy balls. And, and <laughs> I, I think, you and I said, if you're designing those kind of drills, you've, you've probably never had to fight someone because those, you know, a, a bouncy ball is not going to come close to giving the level of resistance or the level of difficulty or the level of complexity of, of a guy trying to choke you or, or hit you in the face. Yeah. Um, it's, <laughs> it's this trend for like uh, the idea that we can train uh, agility, cognition, uh, a sort of sports-specific skill in a gym. I almost regard it as busy work. Um, and I, I've seen a couple of guys uh, doing, like, um, light-based drills. So it'll be, like, you know, reaction drills to lights. And it seems that's great that you're doing that. But, you know, ultimately, they're going to get very good at turning off and off, on and off lights. Like, um, yeah, you know, if, if you're probably better off trying someone trying to punch you in the face. You know, if you want to work on your head movement rather than maybe, you know... Um, doing pizza and pieces with foam pads and stuff and and the whole combat sport thing i think you're treading on thin ice when as an snc coach you start trying to bring in like non-specific agility movement work uh into a context you know that where it doesn't really it doesn't really 
we don't know if we can affect change really and we don't know if we're really making them any better just better at the task at hand you know so yeah i've always joked that you know um when people do tennis ball drills and it's like a you know so that's great they're really good at avoiding tennis balls yeah. you know and and it's yeah it's 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 a lot of fluff uh and it needs to stop really you know it's the same thing with the agility ladder i guess um you know i see fighters using agility ladders um and i see fighters doing a lot of field-based agility drills and it's like that's great that you can do a, a, t a great t drill or a three-point drill but you don't move like that in the cage that makes no sense well i spoke to uh to graham morris about this today and he said uh if that logic is true then boxers should train the uh, the piano which is yeah. not the case um you mentioned readiness earlier uh yeah what, what kind of tools are you using to to track readiness of your athletes and and how do you use that information to, to influence what you do in the programming so um the, the first thing and i wrote a, a blog post on this a long time ago was it, it's something along the lines of um tech-free methods of analyzing readiness and basically boils down to first thing ask them how they're feeling yeah uh is, is a big one um and you know um, MMA fighters are terrible. Uh, you know, most combat athletes are terrible for lying to you about how ready they feel uh, because of the the, 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 you know, the the tough guy attitude that comes with those sports in particular. So sometimes we can't trust that. Uh, the next thing I do is I quite often use a test um, that, I, that I picked up from Dan Baker uh, at a seminar with the using the uh, push band. And so we use the push band to get them to do um, uh, jumps. So we'll do five jumps in a row uh, with a dowel or a PVC pipe on their back. Um, and we'll take the, 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 the peak and average um, velocities they achieve and track them session to session. Um, and we'll then look for any changes in that, like uh, Dan suggested, uh, anywhere between sort of 8% and 10% drop off suggests that maybe, uh, you know, that they're, they're, they're not, functioning so well then maybe you should back off this session and um you know, my experience, I, that's I, a real big drop off as well yeah so i you know with anything i like to test it out so i tracked two of my athletes over a long period of time uh we, we we worked up to about over six months in the end and tracking them over that long period of time we could see that the 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 velocities on their on their jumps changed according to where they were a in the lifting cycles and B, pre or post tournaments and during peaking phases. So it gave us a really nice um, sort of visual aid to see how um, you know they, they, their readiness was affected um, over a long period of time. And you could, for instance, so the, the big one was a big drop off. I think the athlete came in two days after a grappling tournament. They said the grappling tournament wasn't particularly hard, but obviously everything that goes into entering a grappling tournament in terms of um, you know, stress in terms of, uh, you know, maybe not sleeping the night before, you know, the, um, the, the grappling tournament itself. And then the big come down afterwards, you're going to see, you know, some, some, some nervous system suppression or something. So you, it'll, it'll appear in the jumps. And, and we saw that, you know, straight after a tournament. So, um, that's the, the, the big test I use. I've toyed with RSI, uh, in terms of readiness, but, because MMA fighters, and you, you know, you might think differently um, because you work with athletes, obviously uh, are running athletes. Um, generally, fighters have pretty, pretty iffy RSI scores because they're 
the forces they they um, uh, provide against the floor are not particularly uh, elastic. So they they generally like stick stick and, and throw or stick and move. Um, whereas they don't get that that reaction off the floors uh, yeah. particularly as well. I, I do I do think this has been commented on before that like for instance boxes don't have particularly good RSI scores, but you wouldn't want them to hit you. You know, and and it's because obviously they've not got that high velocity ground reaction thing going on. So I did toy with RSI, but but it didn't seem to work too great. So we we went back to the uh, to the to the squat jump stuff. And if if a guy comes in and he's dead, how do you how do you change what you do? Is is there a, a set contingency that you have in place? Or are you playing it by ear? Um, we we play it by play it by ear. Uh, it depends on the, on the, on the nature of the the complaint. Um, normally what will happen is they'll come in and, and they've, they've uh, got some tough soft tissue problems. Bruising, for instance, is a big problem. So they might not be able to do movement A today, so we'll switch them to B. And that's kind of where the hand-supported split squatting stuff came from because um, a lot of guys come in with like hand or wrist or elbow issues. So we could always shift them from a back squat to a hand-supported squat. Um, and, yeah, it, it largely depends on how the individual presents that day. Occasionally, I've had guys come in and I'm almost tempted to send them home. You know, maybe do some 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 stretching and some rolling and maybe some something very light and then send them away uh, because they hate the idea of turning up to the gym and being told to go. You know, uh, and that that can happen sometimes. What do you do in the the probably very rare occasions when a guy comes in and he he just jumps through the roof? Is, are you going to season that opportunity to to really load him up? Um, again, uh, with with fighters, I'm careful yeah. uh, because later that day, he might have something else that that big coming up, um, and it's it's a case of generally I'll try and stick to the plan as much as possible. But this is also why I switched from sticking to to I used to like a lot of guys I stick to to strict loading uh, in terms of this is what's on the plan, this is what we have to do, and obviously with maturity and time and better understanding my athletes, I generally start programming in, in ranges. So, you know, if you're having a good day, we'll, we'll put you up towards the top end of, the, of your allowance for today. If you're having a bad day, we'll drop you down towards the minimum and you get the minimum in, work in and you, you go home. Uh, and this will take the form of like, um, you know, velocity based drop off, stuff like that. So uh, I think, you know, um, I've mentioned before on, on my website, things like uh, using clusters for that effect, using death ground squats to that effect. You know, using velocity is a, is a great way to, to dictate how much work they can do that day yeah. um, to the point where I've had guys come in, they're absolutely killing it, um, and they'll be able to do like 90% singles with a velocity drop-off and hit something, you know, sort of 20-plus reps, and it's like, you know, kind of where do we call a day on this? Because I've got to appreciate that you've got to do other training later on, you know? Yeah, I, have, um, I have a guy right now who you look at stuff like Prelepin's table, and it would say, oh, you know, you're going to get a velocity drop off after five or six reps. Like this guy can stay within 0.1 meters per second of his peak for a set for about 12 reps with uh, yeah. 50% of his one RM. So it's, it's a, you know, VBT is very interesting just for seeing on on average how useful tools like Prolepin's table are, but also when you get those outliers, how how little it can apply. Definitely, um, like uh, talk about talk about Arnold again. He um, he will he will express super high levels of force output and he'll do it again and again and again and then have a very very dramatic drop off. Yeah. So I have to usually monitor him and spot him closely 
when we do that type of work because suddenly it, it, it just gives out. You know, it's not like a sudden drop off with some guys who will degrade over time. It, it's like high output, high output, high output, and then suddenly just no. And and you know, generally I'll have to have to spot them out of the hole or something like you, you know. And it's it's just, that expression is so so strange. Whereas for instance, with Sean with with Sexy Curls, uh, he he um, uh, you know has lower outputs, but he's extremely durable. And, and can go and go and go and sees that very gradual decline in movement and, and rep quality over time. So they're like, even though they're training partners, they're two totally different athletes. Very interesting. What um, what are you looking at developing right now? Where are you where are you trying to push yourself to get better as a coach right now? Um, so in terms of that, like obviously uh, business is a big thing. Um, because I because I'm a private coach, I have to have a good handle on on conducting myself. Uh, firstly, as a as a businessman, I guess, um, and and working on that stuff. Uh, you know, I, I've I've gone down the path of of, of uh, coaching. You know, is, is what I want to do. You know, if I'm going to do it privately, I've got to be a better businessman. So it's it, that stuff. Uh, firstly, um, I'm trying to better understand um, neurology. I keep coming back to it. But it's it's such a, a, a dense subject, and there's still the a lot in box. terms of like it's the black box. <laughs> yeah, it's it's, and I think I have a handle on it, and then something else comes along that that, that throws me, uh, you know. And I've spent a lot of time reading about subjects like rate coding and stuff like that, and just figuring out how why some people people have have terrific levels and other people don't, and and um, neurology is a very interesting subject, and I'm trying harder to to get a better hand, handle on that stuff. Um, the other thing I'm trying to, 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 to get better at is, is the, is the art of sort of coaching in and of itself. I found a lot of Brett Bartholomew stuff really interesting in terms of him going down that whole, like the, the, the art and the, the psychology of coaching stuff. Um, because as I've gotten older and matured, I've appreciated that I can't communicate with everybody the same way. Yeah. And you, you have to tailor your approach to individuals. You have to find out what makes them tick. What, how you can get the most of them out of a session, you know, because um, I've had guys come in in the past who, who uh, most of the time I'm used to having guys in who, um, you know, do, I, they do everything I ask and they work, work, work. And then, and uh, I, you know, I used to work with a fellow uh, called Luke Barnett, um, who was in the UFC for a while. And, and he'll admit himself that, that um, uh, when he first came into me, he was like, he does the work. But, he, but he'll moan about it. He'll try and get stuff changed if he can. And I was thrown. I didn't know how to deal with that. Yeah. Someone who was willing to question what I was offering up was like, well, here's the work. You've you got to do it. And he's like, no, I don't do that. He's like, oh, can we not do that? Can we do this? And I was, I was utterly thrown. I was like, how do, I, how, do I, how do I deal with this person? And Luke will admit it himself uh, that he was a bit like that sometimes. Or he'd come in and he was having a bad day and he'd be like, oh, I don't really feel like doing this. Can we do this, or, or you know, and and just having to deal with that was was a, was a total shock to me. And, did you play the that, game? What's that? I said, did you play the game with him, and uh, or how, uh, how did that relationship develop over time? Yeah, so so you you give him you you adapt things, you make things more palatable. So yeah, we found modifications to movements that he preferred because he's six six. Tall people hate lifting anyway. Yeah. So trying to get him to buy in to some stuff that he liked doing and then giving him a little dose of stuff he maybe didn't like doing and balancing those two things. 
and, and teaching him the importance of it as well. Um, you know, that was 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 kind of kind of hard work. But um, you know, it's it's that sort of push pull relationship. You know, and a lot of the time, I, I started to realize that in his case, for instance, that 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 um, I think it's sort of reassurance on his part was what was needed. And and um, yeah, it's just just interesting having to deal with with people who come in and perhaps don't want to play the game. They're paying you for your services, obviously, which is different to say maybe working in uh, because it's like you're here. You're paying me to train you, yet you don't want to do what I'm giving you. Whereas, obviously, if you're working in a in a you know a setting where uh, you know you're the coach and you're salaried and stuff, that's different, you know. But uh, yeah, it, that that always struck me as kind of strange. Like you know, these guys are paying me for this, yet they don't want to do the work I'm giving them. It's like you're you're paying for for, for you know, my input on this thing, yet yet you don't want to do it. Oh, mate! Before we go down a rabbit hole on this, uh, <laughs> I'll have to stop. Where can uh, where can people find you online? So it's uh, www.powering-through.com, uh, and you can also find me on Twitter. It, that's WS Wayland, and you can also um, uh, find me on Instagram. Uh, that's just Powering Through. Awesome, man. Well, thank you very much, right. Alex. I uh, appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. My pleasure.